Thank you, Pastor. Well, the reason it's been so quiet in here is because I've had such a terrible voice. You've had to listen on purpose. But uh, I do appreciate the opportunity uh, to be with you. It's been a wonderful time. And I thank the Lord for what he's doing in our hearts and uh, appreciate uh, the uh, services we've had and your faithfulness to the Lord's house and allowing God to speak to your heart. And as Pastor said, the, the greatest results of a revival are what happens after the meeting. And uh, if, there's, if there's nothing happening after the meeting, then probably not much happened during the meeting. So we're praying to that end that God would uh, enable you. The decisions you're making this week will be continual decisions. Have you, have you figured out that when you come forward in a service and make a decision, that's just the beginning of that decision? And you have to make that decision every day, don't you? You have to choose, as your theme says, to, 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 to do what you said you were going to do. And that's sometimes the hardest part. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's not hard to buy a car, but sometimes uh, making those payments every month is the challenge. And so uh, it's the same way when you make a decision for the Lord. That's just the beginning of a commitment that we're making. And yet that's where it has to start. And as it does, God then enables us and equips us to keep those decisions as he designs. So uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for your prayers. I appreciate that so much. We thank the Lord for you. It's wonderful for us as a college out in California to know that uh, across the country, 3,000 miles away, there's a church that thinks about us once in a while and prays for us. And uh, we'll welcome our students back Saturday morning at 9 o'clock and uh, look forward to another great uh, year there at West Coast. Well, let's go in John, to John chapter 4 tonight, the Gospel of John and chapter 4. I think this passage will be familiar to a lot of us. It's um, <clears throat> one that's a rather lengthy story, and we won't read it all at the beginning here tonight, but I think we'll catch up with it as we go. John chapter 4, and I, I preached tonight about a revival that was almost missed. A great revival takes place in John chapter 4, but it was almost missed. In John chapter 4, look at verse uh, 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. You know, revival can be a fragile thing and easily missed. Revival can easily be stopped. It can easily be quenched. Uh, the flames of revival can easily be put out. Some years ago, I was preaching at the Bill Rice Ranch, and it was a week that uh, was unique in that we had a large uh, group of teenagers, but not a large number of churches. I think there were about 1,500, churches, or 1500 teenagers there that week, but they came from about 10 or 12 churches, large youth groups. And this, of course, created quite a competitive spirit. And if you know anything about the ranch, they do a lot of activities and a lot of athletic uh, competition between churches. And so these youth groups all week long have been competing against each other. And, and you know, when you're trying to win a football game or a basketball game or something like that, you, you kind of look at the other team as the enemy. And so the unity in the camp was not building real well. 
And uh, I went down and watched some of these sporting events, and they were going at each other. And, of course, they had some music competitions, some choirs were competing, and, and different things like that as well. And so, uh, in a way, that almost worked against us in the sense that the, the services, you could sense that there wasn't that, that unity among the teenagers. And, and that we were preaching, and, and God was doing a, a trickling of blessing, but nothing like it should have been. And the week progressed. And it got down to the very last day, and I was to preach the final service. Now, if you are familiar with the ranch at all, you know that Friday night is the getaway night. Most of the churches that travel to the ranch for camp, they leave Friday night after the service, and they travel home through the night. And many of these churches rent chartered buses and hire drivers so that they can be taken home. And and so um, the service is a little different. They have an award ceremony that takes place around 6 o'clock, 6.30 after dinner. And then they have their service, and everybody's already packed. In fact, after that service, you're not allowed to go back to the cabin. You're not allowed to go to the restroom. You're not allowed to talk to a friend. When they dismiss those churches one by one, you go directly from that service to your bus, and you get off the property. And it's just, it, it's the way it works, and that's the way they've done it for years, and so that's the way it is. So there's a certain pressure a little bit on that service as far as the timing of it and making sure that, you know, it's, it's done decently and in order and gets out at a certain time. And, of course, we were burdened that th- th- these kids had not completely broken, that there was not this break, and, and I, didn't, I wasn't sure what the Lord wanted me to preach. So that afternoon, I went up to a place called Memorial Park, which kind of overlooks the ranch up into the mountain. Memorial Park is actually a burial ground where Dr. John R. Rice, Dr. Bill Rice, Dr. Joe B. Rice, Dr. Paul Levine, Mrs. Kathy Rice now are buried. And I went up there to the, uh, to the uh, top of that area where Dr. Rice is buried. And I spent a couple hours just talking to the Lord. I said, Lord... We need something to happen tonight. And I don't know what to preach. I'm convinced you want to work. I'm convinced you've got some work here to do. But Lord, I, I need to know what you want me to preach. I, I've got some sermons I could preach, but I don't think any of them are right. And the Lord kept saying, preach on hell. And I said, I don't want to preach on hell. So last night, you know, people are leaving. I don't want them to all hate me. You know, hell is a negative subject. And, and I, had, I had trained under evangelist Joe Boyd, and he said, now, Brother Gatch, when you end a revival meeting, never end on the negative. Always end on the positive. Leave a good taste in people's mouth. So that had been drilled into my mind. I thought, Lord, I can't preach on hell. That's a Monday night sermon. I can't preach on hell on Friday night. The Lord said, preach on hell. And I mean, for a couple hours, I wrestled with the Lord up there about that sermon. And finally, I decided this is what God wanted, but... I went to that service with kind of fear and trembling that, that it was the right, I knew it was the right sermon, but I thought, everybody's going to hate it. And uh, this thing is kind of fragile here. I mean, uh, I can do the right thing here, but we need God to get involved. We need God to bless this sermon. We need God to work in hearts. And I preached the sermon, and God was working. In fact, we started the invitation, and young people began to respond. And they responded, and they responded, and they responded. After about an hour of the invitation, 
the buses were all lined up outside. You could hear the diesel engines running. They were paying their drivers to sit out there and wait. I turned to Dr. Bill Rice III. I said, do you want me to stop? And he said, don't you dare. You see, revival is very fragile. In fact, by the time we ended that service, an hour and a half after the invitation, hour and a half of invitation, I don't know how many stanzas we sang, it, it, nobody kept count. But Dr. Bill got up finally and he said, young people, this is absolutely going to be the last stanza. Now, sometimes preachers will say, this will be the last stanza unless somebody comes. If somebody comes, we'll sing another stanza. He said, young people, this is the last stanza. If you all come, we're not singing another stanza. If nobody comes, this is the last stanza. We sang that stanza, and ten young people were saved on that stanza. God was working in a miraculous way. But i got to tell you something. Revival can be very fragile and easily missed. And here in this record of John chapter 4, we have a wonderful revival. Now, we know that we need revival. And I know that many of you are praying for your church in this new year that many will choose to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and choose to be saved and choose to follow the Lord and choose to get involved and all of these things. We don't dare miss it. And so let's notice three components to this revival that could have easily caused it to be missed completely. First, we see the enemies of ministry. As I've said earlier this week, whenever God is about to do the miraculous, Satan will be working with his maliciousness to destroy what God is doing. And look here in verse 1 of chapter 4 at the religious politics that were in play here. Religious politics, enemies of ministry. In verse number one, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. In other words, here's this controversy brewing behind the scenes about who baptized more converts, Jesus or John the Baptist. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 says, we dare not make ourselves of that number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. For they, compare, comparing themselves by themselves and measuring themselves among themselves, are not wise. And I bring our attention tonight back to the plumb line. We're not to measure ourselves up to another Christian or what the church standard may be. Our example, our standard, is the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. But here we see the religious politics. And then notice, as we get into the story, we see reconciled priorities. Look down at verse number 8. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Now again, I'm skipping some verses because most of you know this story. But Jesus sits on this well here in the city of Samaria. And this woman comes out and, and he begins to talk with her. But the disciples had long gone left. Well, why? Well, they were hungry. And so they went into the city to buy meat. Now, there's nothing wrong with food. There's nothing wrong with eating. But does God have a priority in our life? Does he have preeminence in our life? In all things, Colossians 1.18 says that he should have the preeminence. I want you to listen to some verses in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, and think about this. 
in verse 26, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark and they, they knew not and the flood came and destroyed them all. A little later in verse 26 or verse 28, likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone and destroyed them all. Now, God is saying, just as it was in the days of Noah and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's going to be when I come back. And we often think, yeah, it's going to be wicked. I mean, look at it how it is now. I mean, we're probably getting close. But it's interesting, Jesus doesn't list one thing sinful there. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded, they got married, they gave away their children in marriage. Now, I don't think there's anything sinful about any of those. Most of us ate today and we didn't confess our sin afterwards. Well, maybe you had to do a little bit of confessing, I don't know, it depends on what you ate, I suppose. We drink, we buy, we sell, we plant, we build, we, we get married, we, we give away our children in marriage. Nothing sinful about those things. So what is Jesus highlighting there as characteristics of the last days? Busyness. And what's interesting is these are reconciled priorities. In other words, we think, well, you know, I... Yeah, I know Pastor wants me to choose to serve him. He wants me to choose to be in church every time the doors are open. He wants me to choose to be a soul winner. He wants me to choose to tithe. He wants me to choose to do all these things. <clears throat> but I've got all this other stuff that's important. And there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm not living in sin. I'm not going out and doing wrong. And we justify, we reconcile our priorities that really keep us from choosing to serve God. And that's exactly what was happening here and about to steal away this revival. Then notice ruling presuppositions. <clears throat> Go down to verse 27. This is after the conversation with the woman. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? You know, these disciples had stereotyped this woman, hadn't they? They had stereotyped the people of Samaria. The Samaritans to the Jews were called dogs, which is the, was the lowest term you could use in those days to demean somebody, to call them a dog. And the Samaritans were, were dogs in the, in the eyes of the Jews because they had defected, in a sense, from what God had taught, and so they looked down upon them. They, they were worthless people. And the disciples fell into that trap of a, of, of a presupposition. Uh, even this woman, as Jesus talks to her, she says, why are you talking to me? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We're a stereotype people. We're a stereotype group. We're worthless. We're, we're not any good. And it's amazing how we get these presuppositions about the work of God and the ministry. Well, th that person probably wouldn't want to attract. I, I, don't, I won't bother that person would never be interested in coming to our church. 
Uh, you know, we can't have revival in these days. Uh, the church can't grow. I mean, it's just impossible. We get these, uh, these presuppositions in our mind. In Leviticus 19 and verse 15, the law said, You shall not do unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy brother. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.21 that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Are we ignoring somebody? Every soul is worth the whole world to God. Are we ostracizing certain people because they don't quite meet our standard? Are we avoiding some folks at church because of a difference? Be careful. These are the enemies of revival. And then notice a ruinous procrastination. In verse 31, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. In other words, they came back with uh, some food. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Did somebody get here before we did with food? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. You know, the devil doesn't care what we do as long as we don't do it today. The truth is, the devil doesn't care how many decisions we make tonight as long as we don't carry them out tomorrow. And the devil is really good at ruining revival because of procrastination. God is a present tense God. God expects obedience today if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. When you hear the gospel, God expects you to respond now. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. So Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. For the night cometh when no man can work. Solomon said, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no device, nor work, nor knowledge in the grave whither thou goest. Redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So we see some enemies here of ministry. But let's contrast that now with the example of the Messiah. In contrast to these disciples who fell, fell prey to the enemies of revival, the enemies of ministry, we see the example of Jesus Christ. We see he has a compelling cause. Go back to verse number 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, if you study geographically this route, it was not the most convenient route. It was not the closest route. It was certainly not the route the Jews would take. But he said, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because Jesus knew there was a cause to be accomplished in Samaria. There was a woman there. There was a soul that needed to be saved. There was a city that needed to be reached. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't convenient. But you know, it wasn't convenient or comfortable to Jesus, for Jesus to leave heaven and come and die on a cross either. 
And oftentimes we, we make our decisions based on whether it's comfortable or whether it's convenient or whether it's conducive to our plans. And yet that should have very little to do with our service for Christ. And so Jesus comes to Samaria and we see a cultivating conversation. In verse number 5, he cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. The well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. You see what Jesus is doing here? His conversation starts out perhaps as any normal conversation might start. Hey, can you help me out here? Could I have a drink? But Jesus had a reason behind everything he was saying because everything he was saying was leading this lady to the solution to the problem in her life. It was a cultivating conversation. Do our conversations have purpose like that? Or do we just talk? The average male says 10,000 words a day. The average female says 25,000 words a day. I'm stating facts, okay? Don't get mad. Now, most women will say that's because you guys don't listen to us when we talk to you, so we have to say it again. I, I, I get it. But how many of our words are designed in our mind, led by the Holy Spirit, to cultivate a conversation that would lead people to Christ? Again, it's not wrong to talk about your sports team. It's not wrong to talk about the weather. It's not talk, wrong to talk about politics or whatever it is that we might find ourselves engaged in conversation with someone at work or maybe uh, in a store or whatever. But, but are we thinking, can I bring this people, this person I'm talking to, to Christ? We see this masterful way in which Jesus Christ uh, develops this conversation and everything is bringing her to himself. And isn't that what Paul expressed, let your conversation, which, by the way, doesn't mean just your speech, but it does include your speech. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, the things that we do, the things that we say, the way we react, everything in our life ought to be in some way propelling people toward the answer that they need. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, walk in wisdom toward 
them that are without, redeeming the time. And it's interesting, the very next verse, verse 6, after he says, redeeming the time, let your speech, how do we redeem the time? Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, you may know how you ought to answer every man. In other words, one of the greatest ways we can redeem our time, one of the greatest ways we can use our time is to engage in conversation with people and lead them in that conversation to Christ. In this cultivating conversation, we see a churning conviction. Oh, in verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come thither. The woman answered and said, I, I, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You know, when your salt is uncontaminated, it has savor. And savor stings a wound. You ever get fresh salt in a wound? Doesn't feel good. And our conversation, if, if it is salty, will bring conviction to the lives of people. Because God uses his word to pierce the hearts and the lives of people. A churning conviction. But our job is not simply to convict Notice a call to Christ. In verse 20, our fathers, she said, worshiped in this mountain. She's pointing to Gerizim. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, when he, which is called Christ, when he is come, he'll tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. The call to Christ. Aren't you glad we have that message? Aren't you glad we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord? It's not our message. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. As, as Philip approaches the Ethiopian eunuch later in that chapter, he, he opened his mouth and preached unto him Jesus. You see, it's not about us. It's not about our church. It's about Jesus. The world needs Christ. So we see the enemies of ministry. We, th we see the example of the Messiah. But then notice thirdly, the explosion of the miraculous. We've looked at the disciples, we've looked at Christ. Now let's look at the woman a little more closely. The explosion of the miraculous. You know, when we forget about ourselves and we focus on Christ, revival can take place. And we see here an abandoned reputation. In verse number 28, the Bible says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She left her water pot. 
That water pot represented her whole life, didn't it? Every day to the well. By the way, this woman came at the sixth hour. That's not when women came to the well to draw water. Women came to the well first thing in the morning. They needed water all day. But this woman, because of her sordid reputation, didn't want to be around the other women in town. She had stolen their husbands. She had a reputation of a sinful woman. And so here she is at the sixth hour with her water pot, as she is every day. And yet when she finds Jesus Christ, she left her water pot. Thirst that had never been quenched by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the spirit or the, or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life had now been met in Jesus Christ. All my life long, I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water, ever springing, Bread of life, so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long had craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood. I now am saved. Listen, when you find Christ, the husks of this world, the things of this world, they, they no longer satisfy, they're no longer needed in your life. You leave the water pots of sin. Because you found your all and in all. You're now complete in him. With Jesus, there's no need for a water pot. And then we see an announced redeemer. In verse 29, she said to these men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You know, you can't keep salvation to yourself. When God changes your life, when you become a new creature in Christ, you can't keep that quiet. In Acts 4, we cannot but speak the things which we have both seen and heard. You ever, you ever study the miracles in, in the life of Christ and how many times after somebody got healed, he said, see, that you tell no man. Don't tell anybody what happened. And what did they do? First thing they did, tell somebody. You can't keep a miracle quiet. And when you get saved, you'll announce your Redeemer let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we see an advanced revival in verse number 30. The Bible says, Then they went out of the city and came unto him. And we read in verse 39, Many of the Samaritans of the city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two more days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They got curious because of the change in her life. But somehow they knew it wasn't her word that mattered. It was his word. Revival doesn't say, Hey, come see the evangelist. Hey, come to our church. No, it's come meet our Savior. Come meet our God. 
a number of years ago, I was preaching at a camp to teenagers, and they had two speakers. The other speaker was a man I'd never met. I'd heard a little bit about him, but I didn't, I'd never met him. His name was E. Robert Jordan. E. Robert Jordan had been in the Navy and had worked his way up the ranks and was a very rough, tough kind of a guy, a little bit like Brother Rich. <laughs> Where's Brother Rich? There he is. Uh, you, were you ever in the Navy? Yeah, okay, well, he, this guy was, he, he kind of talked like Brother Rich. He just kind of rough, he just kind of, I don't know, just had a language that, you know, you just knew this guy means business. Don't mess with him, you know. And even when he preached, he, he preached like that. But E. Robert Jordan had come up through the Navy, and he was one of these rough guys, and, and uh, he, he was the, he was the um, I don't know what you call him in the Navy, because, I, 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 you know, it's all different in different ranks of the military, so forgive me, I, I don't know those ranks. But, but he was the head of a submarine ship, 800, 800 men on board. And he was the, whatever, the admiral, whatever they call him, he was the guy that ran the ship. He was in charge, whoever that is, the major, I don't think that's Navy. But whatever it was, he was it. I want to say chief staff sergeant or something like that. That's not right either, somebody's saying. Okay, well, whatever he was, he was it. And they came into port and E. Robert Jordan had a reputation of being rough. His language, every other word, was a curse word. I mean, he was dealing with some rough men, and his, his way of motivating them was to be tougher than them. And they came into port, and somebody invited E. Robert Jordan to a church, and he heard the gospel, and he got saved. And the next morning, he got back on that ship, and they set out for a six-month um, journey. He had been saved less than 24 hours. He knew his life had changed, but he didn't understand what to do at that point. He, he knew that something had happened. There was a peace in his heart he had never known before. His life had changed on the inside. He had no idea what needed to change on the outside. He had no idea how to communicate this to anybody. But, but, but he thought, man, I, I got to tell these men about Christ. But he'd heard one sermon in his life. And the only thing he could remember was, as he heard the sermon the night before, the guy opened the Bible and read the Bible. And he thought, well, I could do that. So as they got out of the port and they started out across the, the waters, the next morning he called all 800 men up to the deck. He said, sit down. And they all sat down and he, he, he said, now look, I don't know much about what I'm talking about. But he said, I got saved. He said, I ask Christ to be my Savior. And he said, I know that what I got, you need. And I don't know how to tell you how to get saved. But I know this book does. So we're going to read it. And he opened it up to Matthew chapter 1. And those 800 men listened as he read Matthew chapter 1. Now, if you know anything about Matthew chapter 1, the first 20, ver 20 verses are the genealogy of Christ. He could not pronounce a single name in the list. He's just slaughtering every name. He's stumbling along. He can't read well to begin with. And he's, he's slaughtering every name in there. And these guys are looking like, what happened to the chief? You know, I mean, look, at, what in the world? He's reading the Bible. He read through Matthew chapter 1. He got done reading. He said, I don't know what all this means, but I know God's word can change your life. 
And then he gave his testimony how Christ had saved him. He did that every day for that tour. Every day he called those men to that deck and read a chapter of the Bible to them. And when they came into port, almost every one of those men had trusted Christ as Savior. When I preached with him, I asked him about it. He gave it as part of his testimony. I said, uh, Dr. Jordan, do you ever hear from any of those men? He said, oh, my. He said, the last I knew, 400 of those men that got saved on my boat, on my ship, had gone into the ministry when they got out of the military. Exactly half that he knew of. He didn't know one thing about preaching. He didn't know one thing about even what he was reading. But you see, it was something that changed in his heart. And when God gets hold of us and we put aside all these other things that could hinder and, and, and squelch revival, God can do some amazing things. And so we must be silent. We must submit. We must search. We must separate from the world. And we must serve. And when we choose to be silent, when we choose to submit, when we choose to search, when we choose to separate from the things God says to purge, when we choose to serve Jesus Christ and no more excuses but just choose to serve Him, you know what happens? Revival. Revival. Don't miss it. It's fragile. It's easy to miss. These disciples almost missed it. And because of them, this woman could have easily missed what God wanted to do in her heart. And the whole city could have missed an opportunity to hear Jesus Christ. Be careful. Revival's fragile. If God is sending revival to Bible Baptist Church, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it. Let's pray together. Father, we know our need for revival. We, we see it clearly in our lives every day. We see it clearly in our culture, our society around us. We see it everywhere we look. The need for God, the need for Christ, the need for Bible truth, the need for change. And yet, Lord, I pray tonight that we would not be the ones to hinder or somehow miss what you want to do because of some enemies that could come into our life to quench the Spirit of God. May we look to this example of our Savior and pattern our life after His. And then, Lord, may you grant a miracle in our generation. I pray, Lord, tonight that if someone has never experienced the miracle of salvation, as this woman in John 4 experienced, I pray that tonight they leave their water pot and come to Christ, who can quench their thirst and give them eternal life. And for Christians, Lord, help us to enter into this year with a desire and a decision to choose revival. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. And ask us to stand quietly and the piano plays out of their nights. And if God is working in your life tonight, perhaps bringing 
some of the truths from a night before into perspective tonight. Perhaps another layer in your heart tonight that the Spirit of God is placing there, exposing there, tugging at, piercing through. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. Don't let an enemy of revival keep you from what God wants to do. thing that stirs the heart of God to continue revival is the obedience of his people. When he sees his people hearing truth, responding to it, God says, let's give them more. Let's give them more blessing. Let's make them more effective. Let's make their lighthouse a greater light. Their salt a little more salty. So if God's speaking, don't hesitate to obey him. Pastor. 